This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello, welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Douglas Mpoga, and here is what's coming up. Saving bodies have already been pulled by the fire and ambulance services. What is more ironic here is also that during the exercise, they were able to rescue a toddler and her mother. They brought them alive. That's report Alpha Jaffa in Dakar, who says rescue workers pulled two survivors from the debris of a collapsed building early this morning. Details coming up. Also, Transparency International's annual report says efforts to curb corruption in Africa stagnated in 2023. And the EU's top diplomat says it's facing a dilemma over its remaining presence in the Sahel region. All this and more coming up on African News Tonight. The global anti-graft organization Transparency International has released its annual Corruption Perception Index. It says efforts to curb corruption in Africa in 2023 stagnated, with 44 of 49 countries getting scores reflecting high levels of corruption. Darren Taylor reports. The Corruption Perceptions Index, or the CPI, ranks countries by their perceived levels of public sector corruption. It scores on a scale of zero, which is highly corrupt, to 100, which is very clean. According to the index, the least corrupt countries in the world in 2023 were Denmark, Finland and New Zealand, with scores between 85 and 90. In Africa, says Transparency International, or TI, only a few countries, most notably Seychelles, Cabo Verde and Botswana, have minimal government-led corruption. The president of TI Zambia, Priscilla Chansa, presented the CPI in Lusaka yesterday. She said Africa's average score was just 33, meaning it has some of the worst official corruption in the world. The analysis has revealed that a global trend of weakening justice systems is reducing accountability for public officials, which has allowed corruption to thrive. We have also established that corruption and the rule of law are closely intertwined. When justice can be bought or be politically interfered with, the laws stop applying equally to all, and saving private interests rather than the common good becomes the norm. According to TI, Equatorial Guinea, South Sudan and Somalia are the most corrupt countries in Africa. But, it says, officials are also plundering billions of dollars in more developed economies, including Kenya, Nigeria, Ghana and South Africa. Chansa said South Africa in particular showed remarkable increases in corruption, despite President Sul Ramaphosa's pledge five years ago to clean up the governing African National Congress. Transparency International says the era of state capture during which former President Jacob Zuma and allies allegedly stole about 500 billion rands, that's $30 billion, continues to weigh on South Africa, with little being done to prosecute some of the biggest financial crimes ever perpetrated in Africa. Johannesburg-based anti-corruption activist Wayne Divinage says he's not surprised by South Africa's bad rating. The fact is that we're going backwards, and that's a real concern, especially 
on the fact that, you know, Cyril Ramaphosa came into office on the back of an anti-corruption ticket and stance. When we see what's happening since state capture, by the way, since Ramaphosa has come into power, the absolute abuse of the procurement systems is diabolical. It is atrocious what is going on and how much money is being wasted. People not being held accountable when the evidence is so very clear. So there's a political interference issue. There's a lack of political will. Ramaphosa's office told VOA the president acknowledges corruption is one of the major failings of the ANC-led government, resulting in development stalling and state institutions faltering. Ramaphosa's spokesperson said the president's National Anti-Corruption Advisory Council is helping him towards implementation of policy and institutional reforms that will soon result in what he calls an erosion of corruption in government. Meanwhile, says the CPI, South Africa is just one of many African countries where corrupt officials are siphoning resources away from basic public services, depriving millions of Africans of access to health and education. Chansa says the index also has some good news. In 2023, a record five countries in sub-Saharan Africa have achieved their highest ever CPI scores. This includes Seychelles, the top performer on the continent, our neighbor Tanzania, another neighboring country, Angola, retains the record for the best five-year improvement in the CPI score globally, jumping up 14 points since 2018. Chansa says these countries and others like Zambia and Ivory Coast, have implemented effective mechanisms against graft. These include well-resourced anti-corruption authorities and economic and financial crime sections in the court system. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. The European Union's top diplomat says his organization is facing a dilemma over its remaining presence in Mali and the wider West African Sahel region. EU Foreign Policy Chief Joseph Borrell says the decision by Mali, Burkina Faso and Niger, all run by military hunters, to withdraw from West African bloc ECOWAS has further complicated EU presence in the region. He says the move creates what he called a new geopolitical configuration of the area. He added that Russia's presence was already strong in Mali, and could be soon in Niger and Burkina Faso. He said the EU still has a couple of missions in Mali that have not been withdrawn, but that it does not want to cooperate with African corps, formerly called the Wagner Group. He says the EU has until May 24th to decide whether to stay in Mali. Israel is calling for the disbandment, disbandment, disbanding of UNRWA, the United Nations Agency that aids Palestinians, after Israel presented evidence that at least 12 UNRWA staffers participated in the October 7th massacre. Several major donors have suspended funding. Palestinians say that UNRWA fills a vital role in distributing humanitarian aid in Gaza. Linda Grandstein reports for VOA from Jerusalem. The U.S. Congress is holding hearings this week into whether the United States should permanently defund UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, in charge of supporting the 1.5 million Palestinians defined as refugees in Gaza. 
Some major donors, including the United States, have suspended UNRWA's funding in response to recent Israeli revelations that UNRWA staff actively participated in the October 7th Hamas massacre in Israel that killed roughly 1,200 people. Israel has presented evidence of acts committed by at least 12 UNRWA staffers, including kidnapping an Israeli woman and participating in a massacre on a kibbutz. In addition, about 10% of UNRWA's Gaza employees have links to Islamist groups, and 50% have close relatives who belong to those groups, according to UN Watch, the watchdog group bringing evidence to the Congressional Committee. Hillel Nehrer is the executive director of UN Watch. UN Watch is releasing a new report entitled UNRWA's Terrorgram, where we expose a Telegram chat group of 3,000 UNRWA teachers in Gaza. The purpose of the group is to exchange information uh, for UNRWA teachers, but interspersed among 249,000 messages that we downloaded before they would be deleted, they uh, repeatedly celebrate terrorism on October 7th and thereafter. UNRWA has a staff of 13,000 in Gaza, most of them teachers in UNRWA schools. In response to the Israeli allegations, the agency says it has fired nine people and will continue to investigate. But some Israeli analysts say the problem with UNRWA goes far beyond today's crisis. They say that UNRWA has perpetuated the status of Palestinians as refugees for political reasons rather than resettling them like refugees from other conflicts. Anat Wilf is a former Israeli Knesset member and has co-written a book about UNRWA. UNRWA is uh, started as a temporary agency with good intentions to settle the Arab refugees from the war of 47, 48, 49. Tens of millions of refugees were settled at the time from post-imperial wars. None of them, nor their hundreds of millions of descendants, are called refugees today. They've moved on to build new lives except the Palestinians. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the Israeli evidence against UNRWA is, quote, highly, highly credible, but also said that UNRWA plays a crucial role in distributing needed aid in Gaza. Palestinian officials say defunding UNRWA will be collective punishment and make the difficult humanitarian situation during the war in Gaza even worse. Nabil Abu-Rudena is a spokesman for the Palestinian Authority. This step simultaneously taken during the war in Gaza sends a wrong message. This, this is, there is a war against the Palestinian people. This decision is incorrect and should be stopped immediately. We urge all these, all these countries to repay the UNRWA because it's a humanitarian issue. Palestinians fear that if UNRWA is unable to operate in Gaza, the more than a million people sheltering in UNRWA schools will suffer an even greater humanitarian crisis. Linda Gradstein, VOA News, Jerusalem. The Wall Street Journal says the relationship between Egypt and Israel is moving from strained to breaking point as Egypt warns Israel against pushing large numbers of Palestinians out of Gaza and into the Sinai Peninsula as it pursues its war against Hamas. The U.S. newspaper quoted Egyptian officials and others familiar with the situation, saying relations between the two countries are at their lowest point in at least two decades. 
Ambassador Ayman Zain Aldin, former director of the media department at the Egyptian Foreign Ministry, explained to VOA's senior analyst, Mohamed Al-Shanawi, the reasons behind this tension. I have to agree that it's been uh, many years since we've seen Egyptian-Israeli relations uh, at that level of tension. But I have to say also that this is because we're back to where we were before the beginning of the Oslo peace process, where, when there was what seemed to be an, a serious attempt to resolve the Palestinian question and the overall uh, Middle East conflict. But before that, and I have to say this very clearly, this is not the first time that Egyptian-Israeli relations became so tense. I'm sure you will recall that right after the total withdrawal by Israeli forces from the Sinai in uh, 1982, Egypt withdrew its ambassador from Israel, who has been there for only a, a brief period, withdrew the ambassador over Israel's uh, invasion of Lebanon, and, and the ambassador stayed uh, withdrawn for four years. So this is not the first time. It has always been Egypt's view that the peace between Egypt and Israel is an attempt to achieve comprehensive peace in the Middle East. And uh, whenever Israel acted against this view that is supposed to be shared by Israel as well as the United States, the main sponsor of that agreement, tension grew between Egypt and Israel. So what we're seeing now is a reversion to what used to take place before the Oslo peace process, because frankly, Israel clearly is uh, turning its back to the idea of achieving comprehensive peace, particularly peace with the Palestinians. So yes, there is tension now. My fear is that unless the Israeli government and Israel in general, because it's obvious that uh, the Israeli population, the Israeli public opinion has become at the furthest point from accepting the idea of a compromise, a historic compromise with the Palestinians compared to any time in its history, unless Israel makes up its mind, I'm afraid we'll see even more tension between Israel and the countries of the region, particularly Egypt. So Yes, the Wall Street Journal's assessment is correct. The Israeli legal team at the International Court of Justice, where it was defending the country against a genocide charge by South Africa, argued that Cairo is to blame for failure in delivering humanitarian aid into Gaza from Egypt's side of the Rafah crossing. How did such accusations add to the tension between the two countries? Well, it definitely added to the tension because it's it's untrue. Most of the borders of Gaza and most of the crossing points of the Gaza Strip are with Israel. The area between the Gaza Strip and Egypt is very short compared to that between Gaza Strip and Israel. And there is only one crossing between Egypt and Gaza Strip, and there are several between Israel and Gaza Strip. So if Israel was willing to accept the passing of humanitarian aid, they have a chance to do it even without Egypt's approval. But that's not even what's going on in Rafah crossing is, is not what Israel has been describing. First of all, when the arrangement for Gaza was made during the Oslo arrangements, it was decided that Rafah would be a crossing for persons, while the crossings between Gaza and Israel would be the ones for goods. However, due to the current Israeli siege of Gaza, Egypt permitted the passage of goods, trucks, convoys of humanitarian aid passing from Rafah to Gaza because Israel was laying siege to Gaza. The reason why why aid was not flowing smoothly was that Egypt wanted to always make sure that any trucks of humanitarian aid, any convoys passing through Rafah would not be attacked by Israel because Israel said, unless I approve of the, the passage of the humanitarian aid and unless we have the chance to check each item coming through the borders, we will attack the convoys, the, thus threatening the lives 
of those humanitarian aid workers that are accompany those convoys, Egypt decided to make sure that Israel grants its approval and ensures the safety of the passage of this, those trucks. But I can assure you, and everybody knows, everybody involved in the matter knows that not a single truck was stopped from passing because Egypt was objecting to it. The bottleneck, the barrier is because the trucks have to pass through Israel's checkpoints for them to be checked and reviewed and approved. And this is where the bottleneck is. But not a single truck was obstructed, was prevented from passing because of Egypt's uh, intention or decision. That was Ayman Zain al-Din, former director of the media department at the Egyptian Foreign Ministry. He was speaking with VOA senior analyst Mohamed al-Shanawi. You're listening to African News Tonight. I'm Douglas Impoga in Washington. For more information on these and other stories from the continent, please see voaafrica.com. There you'll find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. For more for world news, check out voanews.com. Several people are feared dead after a densely populated three-story building collapsed in a residential area of downtown Dakar, Senegal, last night. Fire and ambulance services continue to search for survivors after retrieving seven bodies from the debris. From the site, reporter Alpha Jallo tells VOA Caravan Dam that two survivors were pulled from the wreckage early in the morning. What is really happening here is uh, very gruesome. As we, we see now the, the fire and ambulance services, they've been here throughout the night and until now. So the whole story, three-story building, has just collapsed here, almost now killing about seven people. Now this has been made known that seven bodies have already been pulled by the fire and ambulance services. What is more ironic here is also that during the exercise, they were able to rescue a toddler and her mother they brought them alive. And how long ago was that, when they rescued the toddler and the, and the mother? Yes, immediately they were brought out. People were cheering, and, uh, but then immediately they were brought out. The toddler, the little girl was crying, and the mother was you know, lying in, in a stretcher. But the search is still continuing. When did they rescue that mother and child? Was it just this morning? Yeah, this is in the early hours of the morning, in the early hours of the morning, because I was not there. But then those who were there told me that, you know, as if the, I mean, you know, the story building collapsed, it collapsed in a densely populated area. Uh, the worst, you know, the worst scenario is that, you know, when the, when the, when the building collapsed, it's also affected so many homes there. So, you know, we are talking of about, you know, so many separate homes. We were very close to this story building, also got this story completely, you know, down. Is it a somewhat common occurrence for this kind of thing to happen with buildings collapsing like this? Yes, this is almost very common in Dakar in the last couple of years. The, the, the recent one was just about three months ago, three months ago in a locality uh, called Rufisk, where also a building which was under construction, a three-story building which was under construction also, you know, just came down and uh, killing also five people and injuring several people or people. That's reporter Alpha Jafar speaking to my colleague Caravan Dam from the site of a collapsed building in Dakar, the capital of Senegal. A 
local official and a civil society group say militants killed at least 12 villagers in a spate of attacks today in eastern DRC's North Kivu province. The killings came as DRC president met with diplomats and ruled out dialogue with neighboring Rwanda over a related conflict. The AP says the attack was carried out by the Allied Democratic Forces, which is believed to be linked with the extremist Islamic State group. Congolese President Felix Shekedi repeated his claims that M23 rebels are supported by Rwanda and said he would not engage in talks with Rwanda's leader Paul Hagami over the issue. The UN's and human rights groups have also said the militants receive backing from Rwanda. Eastern Congo has struggled with armed violence for decades as more than 120 groups fight for power, land and valuable mineral resources while others try to defend their communities. An opposition leader in Zimbabwe who spent nearly 600 days in detention while awaiting trial on charges of inciting public violence has been released. A magistrate in, a magistrate in Harare convinced, convicted a job Shikala on the charges but handed down a suspended two-year sentence because Shikala had already spent so many days in jail. Columbus Mavunga has more from Harare. A pegged courtroom broke out in Seoul when Arare mustard handed down a suspended two-year prison sentence to opposition leader Job Scala on charges of inciting public violence. Scala was freed after spending nearly 600 days in pre-trial detention. This is what Scala told VOA before he was whisked away. Uh, basically, we've seen it. His 19-year-old son, Ramalo Gaskala, spoke after the sentencing. Living without our father for two years has been a horrible situation for us since we had to live through the end for our wimpishas. Uh, we are so better to the short system in Zimbabwe since it is provided a positive response to us, though uh, in a delay. Sikala, a senior member of the Opposition Citizens Coalition for Change, CCC has denied all the charges against him. Zimbabwe Lawyers for Human Rights made several attempts to get Scala and his co-accused Godfrey Stone out on bail since their 2022 arrest. Scala was detained after accusing supporters of the ruling ZANPF party of killing an opposition activist, an allegation that ZANPF denied. His attorney, Arison Nkomo. My respectful view is that uh, his arrest in the first place was not supposed to be effected, equally the prosecution and subsequent conviction. So that being the case, uh, we are not uh, arresting. We are taking, we have got instruction to take the matter up to the High Court on appeal. What we want is an acquittal, not uh, a conviction with a lighter sentence. No. During bail application and trial, Zimbabwe's Minister of Justice, Ziambe Ziambe, told reporters that the judiciary is independent and doing its duty. Farai Muroiwa Marapira is the ZANPF spokesman. If uh, Mr. Scala feels that uh, there was anything untoward uh, by the way the courts handled this issue, he knows that there are many channels of uh, pursuing uh, redress over the matter. But as ZANPF, we have not seen any case 
where the judiciary has not uh, been impartial in any, in any matter before it. We respect the judiciary, we respect the impartiality, and uh, we just uh, feel that it's a good thing that uh, the issue of job scale has come to a conclusion. Scala's lawyers say they plan to challenge both his conviction and the suspended two-year sentence. Columbus Mavungam, Viewing News, Harare. At least 12 loggers were killed and seven others injured in northeastern Nigeria's Bono State near the border of Cameroon when their vehicle hit a landmine in an area where Boko Haram extremists are active. The French news agency AFP says the loggers were on their way to collect firewood when their flatbed vehicle rolled over a mine on the highway outside Pulka village. Northeast Nigeria is at the heart of a more than a decade-long jihadist insurgency. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Douglas Sivoga in Washington. For the latest development on the continent, 24-7, visit our website at vioafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, David Van De, and our engineer, Nashwan Kali, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.